Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive podcast. On this episode, we're bringing you the presentation from our September UX event, where you'll hear from Jared Spool. Jared Spool has worked with hundreds of organizations, written two books, published hundreds of articles and podcasts, and tours the world speaking to audiences everywhere. He currently focuses on his school for UX designers, Center Center. In Jared's presentation, you'll hear about the UX tipping point, how every part of the organization must be infused with an understanding of great design. A big thanks to Overstock for hosting this meetup. And finally, be sure to join our community on Slack, where there's always lots of great conversation happening about UX, product management, and more. You can get an invite to our Slack group and find more information about Product Hive at ProductHive.org. So now, let's hear Jared Spool's talk, Beyond the UX Tipping Point. I'm internet sensation and teen idol Jared Spool. Uh, I'm very excited to be here. Putting on these events, I get the messages for all the different things that Product Hive does, and you all do a lot of great meetups, and putting on these things takes a lot of effort. The companies that host them put in a lot of effort. Let's make some noise for these people, because it's all volunteer. Okay, I want to tell you a story about the largest, most expensive UX project that has ever been undertaken. And it's an interesting story. The product turned out to be basically a wearable. And it's not any normal type of wearable. It's a bracelet, but it doesn't measure your heart rate. It doesn't have a display that's always on. It doesn't let you tap it and somebody else's bracelet vibrates. It doesn't do any of those things. In fact, it doesn't even tell you what the time is, which is sort of weird because the company that made it is known for their watches. And what I'm talking about is the Disney Magic Band. And the Disney Magic Band is, as far as I know, the most expensive UX project that any organization ever invested in. They put a billion dollars behind these wearables. And in the five years since it's been out, it's quite made back its profit. It did that in the first year. So it paid for itself very quickly. And if you're not familiar with the Magic Band, it has sort of that Disney style about it. it. You know, when you first order it, it comes in a box. Every family member gets their own. Everyone is named. You can pick your colors. You can decorate them up. They have Disney characters all over them. It has three different radio systems in it. It has a GPS system, a near-field system, and lo-fi Bluetooth And with all of those systems, you can use it to just get into your hotel room. You don't go to the registration desk. You just walk right up to your hotel room and it lets you in. It lets you have VIP access to all the rides and to all the attractions in the parks. It lets you just wave your arm and pay for things even when you intend to. And uh, and my favorite thing is that if your kid has their birthday while they're at the park, which is a very common occurrence. People tend to do this as a birthday trip. Their favorite character using the GPS system will actually hunt them down and wish them a happy birthday. 
It's a little creepy, but Uber has taught us that creepy can also be cool. But the thing about this project that is most interesting to me isn't actually the price tag or what the product does. It's the team that did it because it surprised us quite a bit when we saw what Disney was doing. Because the team that did it, they haven't been able to do this for very long. Back in 1997, the team that, was, that built the Magic Band, they were the Disney Parks and Resorts team. And their best digital achievement was this website. This was the pinnacle of their abilities at the time. I know this looks great, but it did not work very well. In fact, if you wanted to book a reservation at a Disney resort, you almost always ended up talking on the phone to one of their customer support people because the website was just not good at that. In fact, it was so bad that we would use it as a site to train people to do usability testing. It turns out that if you want to train people to do usability testing, the best thing to do is to let them practice on something that's practically unusable. Because then they, the odds of them needing to explore something becomes very high and they, they will get to it. And so we developed a bunch of test tasks for this website. My favorite of the tasks was based on a, a, a real story of a, a mom who came to, who was a big fan of Disney. Her kids were big fans. She had a six-year-old who loved, loved, loved Disney and loved trains. And what they wanted to do was to stay at one of the hotels that's on the monorail so that every day, whatever they were going to do at Disney World, they would have to get on the train and do this. And the six-year-old would be thrilled by this idea of riding the train so often. So this became a usability test task. She wasn't a person of huge means, so she needed to find an economical hotel. And, and we created this test as, what is Walt Disney World's least expensive hotel that's on the monorail? This shouldn't be that hard to do. For one thing, out of the 24 properties that they have, there are only three that are on the monorail. The Grand Floridian, the Contemporary Resort, and the Polynesian. And of those three, two of them are wicked-ass expensive. And the last one is the Polynesian. So the answer is the Polynesian Resort. It always has been. It probably always will be. That's, that's the answer to this task. And what shocked us was we would use this task over and over and over again. We started to keep track of what was happening with this one task. And what we found was that out of 100 participants in our studies, only about 10% of them could actually get to the Polynesian. They would actually successfully complete the task. So nine out of 10 folks would fail at this basic thing of finding an inexpensive hotel on the monorail. But what was even more interesting to us is we began to realize there were some patterns. And one of the patterns was that two out of every 10 people who tried this task would actually end up choosing a hotel in Disneyland instead of Disney World. Now, for those of you not familiar with the Disney empire, Disneyland and Disney World, there are a lot of differences between these two things. I know, land, world, world, land. It's confusing. But there are actually a tremendous number of differences between Disneyland and Disney World. Probably the most prominent of the differences is that they're 3,000 miles apart. And we would have folks come to the website, and we would have them do the task. And of course, we were training people to 
moderate usability tests. And one of the things you have to be able to do when you're moderating a usability test is be able to recover when the user makes a poor choice. Because what you want to figure out is, did they make the poor choice knowingly? Did they, did they really just want Disneyland instead of Disney World? Do they not realize there's a difference? Do they think they're in Disney World, but don't realize they're on the Disneyland portion of the website? We're trying to figure out what's the actual problem, because at some point we have to make a recommendation about what to change. So we, we would train the people in the room to try and figure this out, try and, and make this happen. And so the, the follow-up question we would train them to, to get to is, can you ride the monorail from your hotel, from this hotel that you've chosen, to Epcot Center, which only exists in Disney World? And the participants would dutifully, having heard the question, turn back to the machine, and they'd click around the website for a minute or two, and they'd turn back to the moderator, and they'd say, yes. Yes, you can. Now, for those of you who don't realize this, a monorail is a six-car train that travels at 30 miles per hour and has no rest. So that's a long trip from Disneyland to Epcot on a train with no restrooms. And, of course, they, they didn't have the right answer. Years ago, I was telling this story in front of an audience, and after the presentation, this woman comes up. It was a conference and answering people's questions, and she... She's next up, and I look down at her badge, and it says, Walt Disney Parks and Resorts. She introduces herself, and she says, can I tell you something? I'm like, sure. You can't tell anyone. Okay. She says that thing about people showing up in Orlando, people guessing the wrong hotel and getting the wrong hotel on the website, that really happens. People show up in Orlando with Disneyland reservations, right? And Disney is such an amazing organization, and their customer service ethic is so high that with a little bit of research, I, f I found out that not only does this happen a lot, but Disney actually reserves a block of rooms just for people who have accidentally picked the wrong hotel, right? And they will do this whether they're sold out or not. So imagine at their season peaks, when every other room is sold out, they are holding these rooms aside for customers. Think about the cost that that must have incurred to hold empty rooms in case somebody showed up with an Anaheim hotel reservation when they show up in Orlando. And they are incurring that cost because it's cheaper than fixing the website. So that's basically where Disney was in 1997. And yet, here we are in 2014 when the Magic Band comes out, and they have pulled off what is probably the most stunning, amazing UX project ever. And what's interesting to me is that journey that they went on. How did they get from being clueless about digital to producing this incredible project that has such deep implications in everything they do. It works in four parks now. It's just incredible how deep and difficult this problem was, and yet they pulled it off with grace and style. And that's what's really interesting about this project. So let's talk about that. And to do that, we got to start by talking about how does an organization learn? And to talk about how an organization learns, we first have to talk about how we learn. How do we learn to understand something? So it doesn't matter what it is. Could be a new language, could be learning how to cook, could be learning how to uh, shoot archery. Everybody goes through the same process. 
And the first stage of that process has a name. It's called unconscious incompetence. Unconscious incompetence is when you don't know how to do this thing you're trying to do, which that's where everybody starts. Of course, you have to start somewhere and you don't know how to do it. No one's born knowing how to shoot archery. So unconsciously, you're, you're incompetent. But also, you don't know how bad you are. That's the unconscious part. And when you don't know how bad you are at something, the natural inclination is to think you're pretty good. After all, you'd never tried this before and you got something to happen. You know, you never tried to cook and you, something that vaguely looks like food appeared. That's pretty good. Okay, I'm proud of that. And we all go through this stage. And the thing about this stage is that we don't know what the difference is between good and bad. So we're, we're just producing stuff and people are going along with it. This stage ends usually when a friend takes you aside and says, please stop. And at that moment, you realize there is a difference between good and bad. You may not understand exactly what that is, but you now understand that there is such a thing as, as bad, whatever it is you're learning, and you are producing that. And a lot of people sort of stop here, and they get into this stage, which we call conscious incompetence. In conscious incompetence, we are still not any good at what we're trying to do, but now we know we're not any good at what we're trying to do. And this is a very sort of depressing point. Back here in uh, unconscious incompetence, it's very blissful. We're just happily doing stuff. But when we get to conscious incompetence, suddenly we're disappointed, right? Every single one of us was an amazing artist when we were little. Every piece of work we did ended up in the art gallery that everyone has installed in their house called the refrigerator. And everything goes up on the refrigerator and we celebrate every new edition. And it, you're just praised and it's just like, oh my gosh, that's so awesome. And then you get to what, six or seven or eight and suddenly the praise stops. It's like, yeah, don't do it anymore. <laughs> no. And we start to believe we can't draw. And we go through life thinking we can't draw because we never pushed past this stage of conscious incompetence, except for a few of us. A few of us persist and we get there and we start to realize that there are some practices that we can undertake, that if we do these practices, we will slowly but surely actually start to get good and we'll start to produce good outcomes. And that brings us to conscious competence. And when we're at conscious competence, we, we're following recipes very specifically. We're, we're sort of still thinking about the grammar of the language we're trying to learn. If we're learning a musical instrument, we pay very close attention to the sheet music that we're playing. We're thinking about all of these things very deliberately. And that's what conscious incompetence is about, is, is that we're, we have these procedures, and if we follow the procedures, we will get a predictably good outcome. Not a great outcome, but a good outcome. And that's way better than just it randomly being good or bad, and mostly bad. So that's conscious competence. But then there's one more inflection point. And the inflection point happens when suddenly we go to do whatever this thing we're learning how to do is. And we don't have a recipe, or we don't have sheet music, and we just wing it, and it works. And at that point, we realize that we actually have sort of internalized what all those tools were helping us do. And we are now at unconscious competence. Unconscious competence is when we can 
go into the kitchen without having a plan or a recipe, just sort of look at the ingredients that are hanging around the pantry and the fridge, and say, okay, I can, get, I can make a dinner out of this. And it turns out pretty damn good. That's unconscious competence. So we can think of the transitions from each of these stages as sort of journeys that people take. The journey from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence is a journey of literacy. We're just learning what the elements of this thing are. If we're learning a language, we're learning the words and the rules of grammar. If we're learning music, we're learning notes and how they're represented on the page. If we're learning design, we're learning what the different components are, what the different aspects of design are. These are the things we're starting to learn. When we go from conscious incompetence to conscious competence, that's fluency. That's can we predictably get an outcome that's good? Can we predictably do something? So these are, these are learning how to use the tools that we've been given and learning uh, uh, more advanced rules like the Gestalt principles and things of that sort. And when we go from conscious competence to unconscious competence, we now are in the realm of mastery. When we talk about mastering our craft, it's that journey that we're looking at. Because here we're going and internalizing the designs that we're making. And we are internalizing the process of cooking. We're internalizing the instrument. And we can just sort of think of a tune and it comes out our fingers and it just somehow works. And that's mastery. Now, this is how an individual learns. But Disney is an organization. So if we want to talk about how Disney learned to get from that 1997 website to the Magic Band, we have to take apart what happens in an organization. It's similar, but not the same. In an organization, the first stage that it goes through is what we call the dark ages. The dark ages are when nobody is thinking about users. No one is thinking about what users do. They are so focused on just getting something to technically work that meets some minimal business requirements that that's good enough. They can get something up on a website that does what it's supposed to do, and it technically, and it doesn't crash most of the time, that's good enough. That's the dark age. And they're not thinking about users and what users need. But what often happens in an organization is someone often from outside joins the organization, or a leader emerges from inside. And now there's someone who does think about users and they keep saying, but what about the users? What about the users? And now we're at what we call spot UX design. And in spot UX design, what we're now seeing is that there are these emergent leaders. They're usually not very high up in the organization, so they don't have a lot of power. But as a low-level supervisor or project leader, they are pushing the project to pay attention to users. And they produce something that's way better than anything else that's ever been produced. And this will often be recognized by much of the organization. But because the organization doesn't know what they did to do that, because they're still in the dark ages, this gets swallowed up. And they, they often doesn't take. And the emergent leader eventually leaves and goes to a company that gives a shit, and they move off. right? But some organizations make it to the next stage. And the organizations that make it in the next stage are because there's someone who has role power, someone who has enough power to say, I'm going to divert some resources from the other parts of the organization to actually make sure that our users get a good experience. 
I don't know what that means. I don't know what that sentence means, but that's what I'm doing. And that executive now spearheads this effort to build a team. And they hire a bunch of designers. Maybe they get enough that they require a design manager. And that team starts to grow. And that team creates a new stage, which we call UX design as a service. And this is when there's a centralized team that is now basically acting as an internal agency, trying to help any group that wants to help to produce better designs. Whereas in Spot UX, it was an emergent leader just focused on their own project. This centralized service, they are responsible to try to get everybody to use design. And initially, their goal was to just get anybody to want to do this. So there's a lot of selling, there's a lot of pitching. But at some point, if they're good, traction starts to happen. People start to see results. They see that things that are well-designed meet business objectives better. Things that are well-designed are actually easier to maintain. So they start to say, yeah, we need more of that design thing. So that starts to grow. And we used to think that this was the goal. If we could get this team to have a seat at the table, apparently there's a table, and it's got really nice seats, Herman Miller chairs, I'm guessing. If we can get the head of this team to sit at that table, good things happen everywhere, right? Unicorns, rainbows, the whole bit. And so, so that's what we needed. But it turns out, as we were watching organizations, they move beyond this. There's like a stage after this. And the inflection point for that stage is actually when one of the teams that that centralized team has been helping gets really upset. And the reason that they're getting upset is that they can't get enough of the centralized team. Centralized team will never have enough resources. They will always be understaffed relative to the rest of the organization. And if everybody's demanding design, they have to split their attention. And that team, that usually an important team in the organization in terms of cash uh, responsibility and other things, that team is like, yeah, I, we don't want to share designers with other people. We don't want to have to constantly retrain someone new to come into our project because the person we had was pulled off and put on another project. So suddenly they want their own designer. They don't want that designer to report to the centralized team. They want to keep it to themselves. And that's when we get to the embedded UX team. And the embedded UX team is you've got a designer with its who's embedded in that team, working for that team, not working for the centralized group. The centralized group doesn't go away because there are other teams that need their help. But this group now has their own. We used for a while, we thought, okay, well, that's it, right? If we could get a UX designer on every team, that would be it. That would be our goal. But we learned that there's another inflection point. And that other inflection point happens when a non-designer, someone like a product manager or developer, maybe even the legal counsel, starts to make suggestions for design. I mean, they've always been making suggestions for design because everybody's a designer, right? Uh, at least everybody thinks they are. They all been making suggestions, but suddenly the suggestions that they're making are actually pretty good. They've been hanging around that embedded designer long enough that this design suggestions that are coming out are actually good suggestions. Maybe they're helped along with a design system or some other tool that sort of keeps them in the rails. Uh, uh, but they are now designing decent stuff on their own, by themselves, without help. And at that point, we call that infused UX design. And infused UX design is when a team is capable of having the non-designers make design decisions that are pretty good. Everybody always worries what happens to the designers when you, all your non-designers, you know, product managers can, can make good designs. Why do they need designers? 
because right now we spend so much time making wireframes for people we don't trust to make a good design decision. And we have to specify those wireframes in such detail that if there's a dialog box that has 20 different states, we have to create a, a screenshot for every possible different state. So there's no confusion. You can't possibly implement this wrong. And we're not getting to the really hard problems that need to be solved to deliver delightful products to our and services because we spend all our time dealing with the fact that we don't trust the people we work. When you get to the point where you can trust the people you work with to make a decent decision, you can just sketch a dialogue box on a whiteboard and the developer can look at it and go, oh yeah, I got it. Go off, produce some piece of code, come back, show it to you, and it's actually pretty good. What do you do during that time? You go work on the hard stuff. You don't have to pay attention to that level of detail anymore. We micromanage design. Micromanagement is not an efficient management technique. So. Infused UX design. Now, when I met the Disney team in 1997, they were definitely in the dark ages. That's what we were working. And in 2014, the parks and resorts team, they were definitely at infused UX design. The people wiring the parks understood the design implications of what they were doing. So everybody understood design. And it was thousands and thousands of people. And that was amazing to see that transformation. Now, if you're finding yourself somewhere on this journey here, a lot of people look at this and go, oh, I know where my company is. I'm right there. And you are in this less than 17 years, you're doing better than Disney, right? This is a long game. This is not a short game. The other thing I want to tell you is, that's important, is that Disney's an organization. You can't really talk about maturity of an organization because an organization is actually made of teams. And it's really about the maturity of a given team. Any given organization is going to have teams that come out all over the spectrum. Some are going to be embedded while others are still in the dark ages inside the same organization. If you want to say, well, where is an organization? It's really, well, where are the majority of teams? That's the only way you can do that. And even this thinking of where a team is, you have to be careful because teams, it turns out, are made of people. It's like Soylent Green. They're people, right? And not just people. Teams are not just made of designers. Teams are made of anybody who influences the design. So the product manager, the developer, the, the legal counsel, all these people are influencing the design. They are part of the design team because they are making decisions that will directly affect the experience. If we map them out on this, what we see is that on a given team, you're going to have people who are all over the board in terms of what they understand, what they're capable of. And so we have to deal with this notion that a given team is not uniformly there. If we want to assess, well, what is a team? Is it the maturity of the average of all these people? No, it turns out it's not. Is it the maturity of the best designer? In other words, if you put a designer who was even more mature into the crowd, you'd suddenly raise it up? Nope, doesn't turn out to be that either. The maturity of a team is measured by the person who is the least mature on the team. That's the person who uh, we have to worry about most. And you've all worked on teams like this. You've worked on a team where someone didn't understand design. They didn't understand UX. And they could not keep the team moving quickly. You'd slow down. You'd have to stop. You'd have to explain. You'd have to explain the same thing again and again. And they'd still look at you with this sort of deer in the headlight stare. 
It makes sense. If you have, say, a product manager, I'm not saying that product managers are like this, but if you had a product manager who didn't understand the difference between good design and bad design, they've got two design choices in front of them. One is going to be fast to implement. They could get it out right away. The other one's going to be slow to implement, and it's going to take a long time, and it's going to be hard. If those two choices look identical except for that speed thing, they'd be stupid to take the slow one. If they can't see the difference between good design and bad design, of course they're going to pick the wrong thing. And good design almost always is slower than bad design. So we're always sort of stuck in this place where we have to focus on the least mature person. So this means from a design leadership standpoint, the number one job of design leaders is to somehow raise up the maturity to get those folks to be fluent. If we can get them to fluency, we see dramatic quality changes in the outcomes we produce. Designs get better, products get better, services get better. So our goal is to level up the least mature people on the team. In 1953, the Honeywell Corporation delivered an amazing product to the world, the H-Model thermostat. The H-Model thermostat is this beautiful piece of design, this little, this round thermostat. Thermostats before this were clunky, hard-to-use devices. And somebody at Honeywell had the foresight to hire a designer named Henry Dreyfus, one of the world's best designers that have ever existed. And Henry and his team came in, and they created hundreds of prototypes. And they did all sorts of evaluations with real users. And they spent time in people's homes and in offices. And they studied what people wanted to do. And they finally settled on this design, the H model. And this became a canonical thermostat. This was the premier thing. And it, was, it came out in the days of the sort of tail end of Art Deco and the sort of 50s space age thing. And its round, smooth shape was really something everybody wanted in their home. And Honeywell made millions of these things, and they made a ton of money off these things, and they pretty much owned the thermostat market until 2011, when the Nest came out. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there are 34 states in the United States that have laws on the books that say if you give a presentation on design, you have to mention the Nest, and this is one of them. <laughs> so I have met my legal obligation. Now, I don't want to talk about how great the Nest is or how good it is that UX is or what its flaws are, of which it has many. You know, they've been bought by Google. So personally, I think they are basically the eye of Sauron in your house. <laughs> but the thing that I'm most interested in about the Nest, the question that has been nagging me since it first came out, is a question you never hear anybody talk about, which is why didn't Honeywell come out with the Nest? Honeywell owned the market. They were the market leader in thermostats. How come they did not come out with this product? Now, to understand that, we have to take apart one more maturity thing. And this has to do with markets. Turns out that when something first shows up on the market, it's very much about technology. When the first cell phone showed up, it was the Motorola StarTac. It was this horrible four-pound, $4,000 unit. It took eight hours to charge. It, held a, it had a 15-minute charge. You could make a 15-minute call on it. You had to shout in it to get it to work. And it sold thousands. People loved it. It was hugely popular. It changed the market. And suddenly, uh, they owned this marketplace. And that's well and good. And in this stage, you can be the market leader until you have a competitor. And when a competitor comes, 
Now you have to compare features. What is their product like versus this product? And suddenly, we're looking at all the different features. And for those of you who are old enough to remember before the iPhone, the way phones worked was there were thousands to choose from, and they had all these different features, and you had to go and figure out what features you wanted. And towards the end of that stage, people were like, I just want a phone that makes phone calls. This stage ends when suddenly there are just no more features you can add that anybody cares about. You get to this point where it's like, yeah, I don't care about that feature. I just want to do simple things, and this thing is too complicated, right? That's how we got the paperclip from Microsoft. Suddenly, we're in a new stage, which is a stage about experience. The experience of owning the thing, using the thing, trumps the actual individual features that it has. It's about the whole thing. And oftentimes, the experience comes, stage comes from something that didn't exist before, a company that was not in the market. You know, when Apple came out, they'd never produced a cell phone before. And all these big cell phone manufacturers who had millions of units in the world were like, there's no way they're catching up to us. And then the iPhone 1 comes out, and they laugh at the lack of features. Remember, it didn't have the ability to send pictures through SMS. You couldn't make video with it. You had iTunes, but it wasn't very good. There are all these problems with this thing. It didn't have cut and paste. It didn't have apps. None of those things existed at the time the iPhone 1 came out. But it was simple. It was a great experience. It took over the market. We used to think this was the end stage here. But it turns out there's another stage. And I think we're seeing it today with the iPhone 11, which is there's a point where the product is really just a piece of a bigger ecosystem. It's a part of a bigger thing. And this is where the product itself, to some extent, becomes a commodity. This is why the iPhone 11 is actually half the price of the iPhone 10 or X or whatever that thing was called. And the reason is, is because it's, to some extent, you don't buy a phone to make phone calls anymore. In fact, there's a whole generation now that we have bred that don't want to ever make a phone call. And so it's not about that. And it becomes part of the bigger thing. And you have to sort of see the pieces in the bigger thing as a whole. This is exemplified by a lawsuit, a lawsuit that happened a couple of years ago when American Airlines sued a company called GoGo InFlight. GoGo InFlight was the first Wi-Fi vendor for airline. An American, wanting to be the first one to offer it, signed this 10-year contract. And five years into it, they're like, this Wi-Fi sucks. You've got to upgrade. And they're like, I can't upgrade. You've got, you know, these things are on planes. I can't, we can't do that. It's like, okay, well, we're breaking our 10-year contract. You can't do that. So they have a lawsuit. And the lawsuit was because American was finding that in their market work, that customers were actually choosing other airlines. They were actually choosing United because United had better Wi-Fi. Imagine choosing United on purpose. They were doing that because United's Wi-Fi was better. And so Americans were like, we got to break this contract. We got to go with some other vendor. Now, the judge threw the case out because, and this is a quote, who is stupid enough to sign a 10-year contract for Wi-Fi? And the companies have made up since, and they've installed a whole bunch of new equipment on the planes as part of the settlement. It's working better now. This is an example of a piece of radio technology ruining your flight experience enough that people will choose a different vendor. And that's what this commodity stage is like. Now, if we want to get to the experience and commodity stages, we have to get to the infused UX design stage. In order to be able to compete successfully here, we have to have our teams understand what design is. So this brings me back to the question, how come Honeywell didn't invent the nest? If we look at it on this scale, what we can see is that 
The H model was definitely in the technology stage. No one, most people did not have thermostats until this day. You wanted the heat on, you flipped a switch for your furnace, you turned it off when it was too warm. And suddenly you could set a temperature. And so this was brand new. And people loved the idea of setting it and leaving it or setting it and fighting over it. But they didn't stop there. They tried to produce thermostats with lots of features to get people to upgrade programmable thermostats and other types of thermostats, but they never took off because the experience sucked. And then the Nest comes out and the Nest programs itself. It figures out the behavior in the house. It just sets the temperature when people are around or not around and does what it's supposed to until it stops. Now, that's how it looks on the market. But we can also look at this on organizational maturity. And what we can see is quite clear. The H model was spot UX design. They hired Henry Dreyfus. Henry Dreyfus and his team were the only ones who understood design. Henry came in and did what any good consultant did, built them an awesome thing. They thanked him, they paid him, and when they were done, he went home. And when he went home, all of Honeywell's knowledge of how to do that again went home with him. And then Henry Dreyfus did what every great designer eventually does. He died. <laughs> no, seriously. Everyone, every great designer does this. If you're a great designer, you will do this too. It's only a matter of time. I don't know why this is a surprise. That's why this was spot UX design. But the Nest was built with a team who completely understood design, even if they weren't designers. The electrical engineers, the product managers, the marketing people, everybody understood good design. So they were able to do this. Now, I just want to say, there are people who will say, Honeywell makes lots of products. They're a big, multi-billion dollar company. Thermostats was actually a very small percentage of their revenue. Maybe they just didn't care. And that could be true. Maybe they just didn't care. This is how much they didn't care. Google bought Nest for $3.2 billion. I'm going to guess the shareholders cared that Honeywell didn't have that value. So that could be it. But the bigger question is, how did Nest pull this off? How did Nest become design-infused. We had this theory for a while that this was a startup thing, that startups just can sort of decide where they want to go and just start there. And it's sort of true. The original theory we called the stem cell theory. Embryonic stem cells have one purpose in, in their existence, which is to duplicate, to make more cells. And they keep doing that for the growth of the embryo. But there's this weird thing that happens. They don't die. Unlike Henry Dreyfus, they don't die. Those cells go on once all the cells have been made. And what they do instead is they morph into something different. They become a different cell. And each embryonic stem cell just sort of chooses something different to become. Some become liver cells, some become stomach cells, some become colon cells. And so we thought maybe that's how this works. Maybe when you're small enough, you're sort of in this sort of embryonic stage none of this makes a difference. And then you just sort of become what you need to become. And some organizations become infused and some are in the dark ages. And it's just how that works. And so we called it the stem cell theory. And we thought this, this explained why startups worked. And we had, you know, we thought, okay, we found corroborating evidence because we've met many startups that sort of act like colons. But it turns out that that's not it at all. It turns out that it's not because they have some magical property as a startup. It's because of Tony Fidel. Tony Fidel was the founder of Nest, and Tony Fidel came from Apple. He was the lead designer on first the iPod, then the iPhone, then the iPad. 
Tony Fidel knew how to do good design because Apple taught him how to do good design. And Tony Fidel, as a founder, did what lots of founders do. He went into Apple and recruited his old team. And all of them knew how to do design. And then as they staffed up, they made sure everybody else in the company, no matter what job they had, knew about design because they were designers. So all they did was hire people who knew about design. Honeywell, on the other hand, had an existing company with thousands of people. And like all companies, the people were all over the spectrum. And if they wanted to produce what Nest produced, they would have to either train everybody or fire everybody and just hire a new team that knows everything about design. And that's really hard. That's much harder than starting from scratch and just only hiring people who know about design. That's the advantage that startups have. Now, there's one more inflection point that I want to tell you about. And that inflection point has to do with what happens after we get to infused UX design. Before the inflection point happens, you're in this place where a company will ship something if it works technically and it meets the business need. Those two things happen, we'll ship it. If it's not designed well, well, that's okay. We'll fix it in the next release. We just got to get it out there. We got to get people using it. We'll fix it in the next release. For the longest time, I thought that was Microsoft's tagline. We'll fix it in the next release. That's where we are before this inflection point. But when the inflection point comes, we call it the UX tipping point, there's this thing that happens. Sure, we still have to have it work technically and meet business needs, but it also has to be well-designed. If it's not well-designed, we won't ship it. The Magic Band was two years late. It was two years late because not all the functionality that was originally designed was working when the bands were ready. They held on to it. They didn't ship it for two years. A billion-dollar project. Michael Eisner was calling the head of product every day saying, are we shipping it today? Are we shipping it today? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And saying, nope, not ready. Parks aren't wired right. Other pieces aren't wired. The hotels work. I mean, we can use it for just the hotel part, but we can't pay for things in the park, can't do VIP access. They're not there yet. We can do some of the rides, not all the rides. Do some of the stores, not all the stores. Okay, we'll wait. Two years it took them. They wouldn't do it until they got the defined level of delight that they were looking for. Then they shipped. This was a huge pressure on them. That's the UX tipping point. You'll know you've gotten there when a product, I just got an email the other day from a product manager who was so excited because they didn't ship his product. It's like, they didn't ship. It's fantastic. I'm like, you, these are, this is a sentence I've never heard a product manager say. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't think they'd go for it. They, they didn't ship it. Okay, win. So that's it, right? That's the tipping point. So how do we get there? In design, we talk a lot about a design process. Oh my gosh, we fetish over design processes. We're always talking about design processes. And design processes, for one thing, we all, when we draw them out these days, if you just Google design process and look at the images, there's only two styles right now. There are either diamonds or loops. We've entered the jewelry phase of UX design. These diamonds or loops are these magical processes that work like the Newton's pendulum, where you, you pull it back and you let it go, and it does exactly the same thing every time you do it. That's how we imagine it. And we think it's so important that we do things like we ask every candidate we interview what their design process is, as if we'd ever let them use it. Hell, we probably won't even let them use what we think our design process is, <laughs> right? Because they don't work. 
We never follow the design process. And my friend Dan Mall sort of equates this notion of always operating the same as just being deficient. And instead, we have to have an adaptable system. This is a sports ball pitch, right? And when players come running out onto the sports, you know, onto this thing, right, the, the, the football rink or the, you know, baseball court, they, they, they don't have this giant Gantt chart that tells them exactly who's going to do what at which minute of each game. Hey, Harold, I'd like you to score at four minutes and 22 seconds because that's exactly when you scored last game, and it was great, right? That's not how we do it. Instead, we have, it's an adaptable system. We have, they have playbooks filled with plays, and the plays are not predetermined in their order or timing. It's just something they've practiced. And then situationally, they, they decide with situational awareness what play they're going to execute. And they execute that, and either it works or it doesn't work, and then they try another play, or they try the same play again. But they're always, they're always adapting, and that's what we need to do. And it turns out that if you look at UX design, there are lots of these strategies, lots of these plays that you can use. In fact, we started to collect them up, and we, we've now got more than 130 of these strategies. And some of them are literacy strategies, some of them are fluency strategies, some of them are mastery strategies. They're all there. And what we can do with these strategies is we can start to say, okay, which ones work? So here's just a couple examples. One that is amazing is what we call immersive exposure. And immersive exposure is when you basically spend time actually watching users. And this changes everything. This is a literacy play, right? Literacy, remember, is about learning the difference between good and bad. And there's no better way to see what bad design is than to watch your own users use the stuff you've created. If you're unconsciously incompetent, it's probably going to be bad. Users are going to tell you. Suddenly, you know, right? So this is a literacy play. And we can use things like usability tests to tell us whether a design is working or not. Even better would be to go into the field, meet the customers in their own locations, see what they're doing there. And we figured out a while back that there's an inflection point with just exposure, that if you hit the minimum of two hours every six weeks for every influencer, your designs get remarkably better because that repetitive visiting of users and understanding what the problems they're having are and seeing what you need to do to fix it and then seeing when you fixed it, that process gives you a feedback loop unlike any other, and suddenly your, your designs get better. If you only did this, you would see improvement. And we can sort of map out what's happening with a user if we look at uh, just a, the journey that they go on. So we might have a series of steps to them doing something like booking a hotel. We can measure those steps on a scale of frustration to delight, and we can start to see which parts are delightful and which parts are frustrating which parts are delightful and which parts are frustrating. So that's immersive exposure. And we can tell this story and people in the organization will get it because they see that the designs we're creating are not producing the outcomes we're desiring. Now, the second play is shared experience. Shared experience is both a literacy and a fluency play. And what this is, is making sure that we have a vision of what the experience looks like in the future. We can think of the vision as being this flag in the sand that everyone can march to. This is what our experience will look like five years from now. So everybody gets this clear picture of what we can see clearly what this is. 
And that, that flag now is where everybody's going. We're saying, okay, this is what we want to build. This is our future. Five years from now, it's going to look like this. So that's the vision. And how do we figure out what that should be? Well, it turns out initially it's really easy. If we've done our exposure and we know what's frustrating and what's delightful, we just ask the question, well, what if we made it delightful all the way across? What would that look like? Right? That's our vision. Let's just make what we do actually delightful. Okay. So we go ahead with that. The last play I want to share with you today has to do with what we call a culture of continuous learning. The culture of continuous learning is a literacy, fluency, and mastery play. It works at all levels because it's always about learning. Now, people talk about learning, but these days I hear a lot of people talk about failing. We fetishize failing, right? You got to fail fast. You got to fail quickly. You got to move fast and break things. I'm not big on the failing thing. People say, well, you can't learn anything unless you fail. That's not entirely true. In fact, I know a whole bunch of people who seem to fail on a regular basis and don't seem to learn a damn thing about it. So that's definitely not true. You can definitely learn things in a risk-mitigated sense without having to fail first. In fact, just the notion of risk mitigation means that if you are trying to mitigate risk, you're going to fail failing. So that's a problem if you're focused on failing. Nobody wants to be called into the CEO office and answer the question, why did you fail? Well, sir, it's because we have this program to fail as often as possible, and uh, we wanted to make sure everybody learned from that. Because we needed you to learn from it, we made the failure really big so you'd notice, right? This is not the conversation anybody really wants to have. The conversation we want to have is, what did we learn from this? That turns out to be the interesting question. And we need to make sure we're always learning, whether we've failed first or not. So we've done, we've done things. Like, for example, at our, we have this uh, program called Center Center. It's a school for UX designers in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And in this, we have a daily stand-up that the students do every day on their project work. And they do the normal things that you say in a stand-up, what you've been doing, what you're going to be doing, what's preventing you from doing it, what's your highest priority. But we added this fifth question. And the fifth question is, what's the most important thing you've learned and how will it change what you do in the future? And it turns out that one question alone, that moment of reflection, forces everybody to think about learning. But more importantly, everybody in the organization is at the stand-up. We're not a big team. Everybody at the organization, from the leaders all the way down, are every day admitting that there was something they didn't know the day before that they now know. And when you have everybody admitting that they are learning every day, it makes it easier for people to talk about what they've learned. And when people talk about what they've learned, they internalize what they've learned. So these are the three plays. Now, there's 127 more that I didn't tell you about. But these three plays, if you just did these three things, you'd see amazing improvements in the products and services that you deliver. That's what's incredible. And if you did that, what will happen is you'd create something like when a six-year-old walks up to what's called the magic Mickey, and they hold out their wrist. And the Mickey makes this spinning colored light sequence, and there's this, this noise that it emits. And because of the special noise that it just emitted, every Disney cast member, every Disney employee who's within a 15-foot radius of that Mickey turns around, looks at the kid, and says, happy birthday, Angela. It's creepy, but it's cool. <laughs> and that's what great design can get you. So this is what I came to talk to you about.
people learn something like design going from unconscious incompetence all the way up to unconscious competence. We have to help people become literate, become fluent, and some of them master the craft. We need to help our organizations mature by first getting to design as a service, then embedded UX design, then infused UX design. And finally, we need to have an adaptable playbook, one that's filled with plays that we choose based on the situation that's going to get us to each of these steps. That's what I came to talk to you about. Now, if you are interested at all in UX strategy, we have just started a newsletter in the last few months that's free every week, drop something in your mailbox that is all about different strategies, looking at the full gamut of what UX strategy could be. So that's uie.com strategy is all you need to do to sign up. If you're already on our list, but you're not getting the newsletter, you have to sign up because we don't automatically sign people up for things they don't want. We don't give the email addresses away. We don't sell them. So that's the only thing it will get used for is that newsletter. If you're really grooving on this, we've got a two-day workshop where we help teams build their own playbooks. It's called Creating a UX Strategy Playbook. And in this workshop, you actually walk out with an action plan. So this is the type of thing you bring your team to. It's more like an offsite than a training thing, though there's a lot of training involved because to build the playbook, you have to understand the plays. But it really, you walk out with an action plan that you will execute for the next year. So you build this real thing. And that's what we do with this. The next one is, uh, well, the next one is in two weeks, but that's sold out. They sell out about two months ahead of time. So if you're thinking about coming to the one in December, uh, you want to sign up right away because there's only a handful of slots left for that. Uh, the February one is wide open. We do them in our facilities in Chattanooga every two months. And that's what I came to talk to you about. If for some reason you found this to be the least bit interesting, there are a lot more resources about strategy at uie.com. If you work in design and we're not connected on LinkedIn, connect to me on LinkedIn. You can just put in my name. That's my email address. And finally, you can follow me on the Twitters where I tweet about design, design strategy, design education, and the amazing customer service habits of the airline industry. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for encouraging my behavior. A big thanks to Jared Spool for presenting and to Overstock for hosting the event. If you learned some things from Jared's talk, be sure to share it with your team or share it on Twitter and mention us at product underscore hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support Product Hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for Product Hive on meetup.com. And while you're there, go ahead and join the group so you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find videos of all the past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events. We're <laughs> so